Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, who do we have with us today? Today we have Owen Rees, who is an ancient Greek historian specialising in socio-military history. He is a lecturer at Manchester Met University and he's published books like The Great Battles of Classical, the Classical Greek World and Naval Battles of the Ancient Greek World. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's brilliant. Whereabouts are you on lockdown? Um, I've... Uh, getting to the point of having quite had enough um mm. i've got uh what are we now four five we six weeks in now um something like that yeah yeah i've got two kids so homeschooling has ended a couple of weeks ago we've had enough of that uh, <laughs> <laughs> loving your honesty <laughs> yes I th- um we're, we're making sure we all survive i, th- I think that's um that's our, our end game Let's uh, help you by getting you out of the uh, homeschooling slash child um, sphere and into something uh, a little bit more intellectual. Alina, start us off with a question. Yes. So I'm quite excited. Love a bit of ancient Greece. So do tell us a little bit about life in ancient Greece in the 4th and 5th century. Okay, so ancient Greece, the first thing to realise when we're talking about ancient Greece is uh, ancient Greece is not a nation. It's not a country. These are not united people. Um, they're very vaguely related to each other. Um, they only really share similar links in sort of language, some culture and uh, religious practices. Not much more than that ties them. Um, so what we're looking at is lots of individual, mostly independent city-states. Um, and they're not much bigger than cities, if, if that at all, um, that make up... Uh, the entire region. We're talking hundreds, if not potentially thousands, of little states, all vying for resources, all vying for um, political positioning um, in the wider sphere. Um, on an individual level, within those cities, you've got quite they're quite hierarchical states. Um, in most of them, the top uh, in group of individuals are your citizens. Those who have a say, or hopefully have a say in the way their polis, their cities run, they get to, in democratic states, they're the ones that get to vote. They're the ones who have the most, what we might call right, civic right. Um, I mean, below them, you've then got people who are free, but don't have citizen rights, don't have a great say 
in the way things are run. Um, this is what we call a, a metic. They more often than not um, uh, are an alien resident, legally allowed there, but not from there, if that makes sense. And then below them, you've got those who lack freedom uh, entirely, that is the enslaved. This is a slave-owning uh, culture. Um, and the inherent hierarchical nature of that is clear. Um, and of course, all of that is really only related to men. Women can be free, but don't get citizen status in the same way. They don't get to vote. They don't get to take part in politics and, and the like. So what we get is a very um, kind of complex uh, culture, a complex experience of life that is varies between state to state and between person to person, really. You know, it doesn't sound very much fun being uh, a woman in ancient Greek times. Um, no, no, it certainly doesn't. They do get a very short end of the stick in a lot of ways. Um, however, they do have uh, their own influences. They do have their own spheres of uh, power and authority, uh, in particular within the home. Um, but they do have important roles outside as well, uh, especially religiously. And um, when we're... So you've already mentioned that obviously there's lots of states buying um, for superiority and that. So obviously war um, is going to come into the narrative, but how does that come about? Um, so, yeah, war is a, is a constant in, um, in Greek politics. Um, so much so, it's uh, the philosopher Plato says, uh, or writes something on the lines of that um, all states are in an informal state of war against every other state at all times. He describes it as human nature. It's just a natural state of being. War to the Greeks is not nice. They don't like it. Um, in fact, they're very afraid of it. They're very aware that it is a constant present, uh, presence throughout. Um, and, you know, with this idea of informal war is competition, you know, political competition, economic competition, of course. Um, but also aiding and um, constant uh, attempts to take um, resources from others in short raids, as well as what we might consider more formal warfare, you know, where you literally declare war on another, send armies in against one another, naval forces and the like. So warfare is one of those where it's a very nasty element of this period of history, but is a constant because of that. It's reflected throughout all of um, Greek culture that we have uh, remaining now. So it's in their art, it's in their, dare I say, pottery, it's in their um, dramas, it's in their theatre, it's in their philosophy, it's everywhere, it is a constant, and they're very aware that it's a constant in life. How does war change society? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, and it changes society by what war demands from that society or the threat of war demands from that society. So for instance, um, two Greek states that have, um, who are driven and influenced by war and undoubtedly the two probably most famous city-states that is Sparta and um, Athens, where um, Sparta, uh, the influence of war on Sparta is actually not this idea of a sort of warrior culture, but is actually a fear. They are afraid of um, internal uprising. 
they have a, um, a resident slave population known as the helots, constantly afraid that the helots could rise up and take control from them. So a lot of the militarized or pseudo-militarized nature of Spartan society seems directly driven by that fear of uprising, as opposed to Athens, who, um, as Athens starts to spread its influence in the fifth century, it grows into an empire, and that empire brings with it excess wealth, lots of income from um, object states. With extra money comes the ability to actually um, wage warfare for a longer period of time. And in that period, when Athens is able to do this, when it's able to call upon its citizens to uh, engage in military activity more, we see uh, their culture start to reflect that military um, aspect. As I said, in the, a lot of the dramas are very obsessed with war and the impact of war. A lot of the art is either heroizing or in fact creating like a, a pathos surrounding war. Um, so in that respect, uh, warfare can really affect a society. Can you tell us a little bit specifically about the Peloponnesian War and how that affected the political landscape? The Peloponnesian War, this is um, a long-standing uh, period of warfare that um, it seems large swathes of um, the Greek city-states are forced to get involved with. Um, the two big city-states we consider to be loggerheads, Sparta and Athens, are actually heads of um, alliances. I use that term loosely for Athens because their allies are technically their, um, their empire. Um, but Sparta creates alliances of states, especially around the, the Peloponnese, what we call the Peloponnesian League. So it is these blocks, these conglomerates of states who are going, um, uh, who are fighting one another. Um, but ultimately, for supremacy, there is a real fear that Athens' growing empire is going to take control of the entire Greek mainland and uh, the wider Aegean as well. So they fight on and off for what amounts to also almost a 30-year period um, of just sustained uh, conflict. Now, this isn't like Napoleonic warfare. This isn't like the World Wars or anything like that. We're not talking constant, sustained um, land battles uh, where, you know, tens of thousands of men fighting and dying. And This isn't um, achievable in Athens. They don't really have the manpower. They don't have the economic strengths to do that. This is a lot of manoeuvring of forces, shows of strength, um, and the occasional larger battle, um, but also a lot of skirmishes, a lot of ambushes, um, a lot of uh, almost subversive warfare as well. So this goes on for a good almost 30 years. Um, Athens starts okay, um, but then gets hit by a plague, um, which in a, interferes with its strategy somewhat but it survives it survives for a good decade and actually ends up getting um the upper hand um so much so that sparta comes to them for a peace treaty after about 10 years bringing an end wanting to bring an end to the war um but as plato said war is basically an inevitability so whilst the peace treaty was agreed war breaks out again um, but this time the spartans decide they can actually defeat the athenians if they can somehow match them at sea. Um, so they end up going to the Persians of all people. Um, 
foreign superpower to the east um, looking for money. And then with their money, they're able to finally um, defeat the Athenians at sea, break their autonomy in the area, um, and in doing so, bring an end to the Peloponnesian War. The impact, the political impact of this is a twofold. The first one is Athens loses its seat of, not supremacy, but what we call a hegemony. It's that kind of almost leadership status. Um, and in turn, at the end of the war, Athens actually has its democracy ripped for it. And an oligarchy is put in place, admittedly only for a year and a bit. But the, the impact of this war it certainly left scars for Athens. For Sparta, they finally get to replace Athens as the hegemon. So they are now the sort of symbolic leaders of Greece, um, or the Greek people more accurately. Um, and uh, so they start to look to the outside world and you know, um, their normally very insular nature goes by the side. And uh, they start moving out into Asia and indeed um, start to go into a minor conflict with Persia once again. So the Peloponnesian War is one of those elements where it, its influence on the Greek world just cannot be ignored, not just as a, as a military um, campaign or a sustained period of warfare, but its impact politically and socially as well. Possibly no more influential an event during this period than the Peloponnesian War. What sources do we have about the Peloponnesian War? I mean, is Thucydides the only and best source? Uh, no. So Thucydides is, of course, the main narrative. Uh, he himself was a, um, an Athenian commander during the Peloponnesian War. Um, he's actually defeated um, in the northern areas of Greece um, and ends up being sent into exile as a result for failing to hold on to um, the region. So he is often considered our best source for that reason, you know, his own personal insights and so on. But there is another historian, Xenophon, another widely experienced military man and a good historian. Um, he basically picks up the account that Thucydides never finishes. So Xenophon finishes the war for us. So we have two historians. But we also have um, other contemporary bits of evidence, like, you know, during this period, um, Athens is uh, you know, producing its great dramas that it's probably most famous for, um, and also its comedies. Aristophanes is rife at this point, great comedian, is just taking the piss out of everything um, during this, about people, about the war itself, um, everything. Nothing is off limits. Aristophanes. So it's from all these sort of disparate bits of information we can kind of gather not only um, like the narrative, um, but also uh, how Athenians in particular, most of our evidence unfortunately comes from Athens, um, but we can start to gauge more of a public opinion of public ideas of what's going on as well. Aristophanes actually sounds like a great guy that uh, we could have for dinner, you know. Oh. He would be brilliant. He would be absolutely brilliant and he'd make you blush. He loves, <laughs> he, he loves a good sex joke and he loves to. Um, he, he, yeah, very funny man. And his comedy um, stands up to this day. As long as you ignore the really niche jokes about um, you know, Joe Bloggs down the road. Uh, his general comedy is slapstick. It's very sexualized humor as well. Um, it is very funny. 
let's bring PTSD into the mix. Did it actually exist at the time? Yeah, so where this comes from is this, uh, this interest in the experience of war. Uh, you know, um, what impact does war have on the individual? We know today what kind of impact it has, especially psychologically on the individual with studies like post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and of course, in sort of First World War, you had the great studies of war neuroses and uh, shell shock and things like that. So there's been a real trend to push these ideas into the ancient world as well. Um, and basically, the answer is kind of twofold. One is, no, PTSD does not exist categorically in the ancient world um, because PTSD is a diagnosis. It is a diagnosis based on our understanding of psychology, of um, psychiatry, and how we perceive the mind and how we perceive um, impact on behavior. That is all culturally relative. That is all culturally determined by what we do or do not find acceptable or in behavior um, this is the great problem with medicine medicine is not a hard science i mean we're learning that right now at the moment uh you know the amount of times they come out and go we're following the science we're following the science and then you're like well this isn't like the laws of physics you know this is socially relevant this is socially determined not as easy as that um so in that respect no ptsd categorically cannot exist it's a modern understanding of a modern phenomenon, modern diagnosis. Um, much like I would say you shouldn't talk about PTSD if you're talking about shell shock. It's different um, because of the social framework that made it and came up with the idea. However, having said that, the ancient Greeks do seem to show that there was a, an understanding of psychological impact from war. Uh, maybe not for the same reasons as we have, which is a lot to do with the horror of war, uh, the effect of killing and things like this. Um, but in the ancient Greek world, we do hear of things that only really make sense uh, if we consider it as a psychological impact. So classic example, my favorite example is an Athenian called Epizelos. Epizelos fought at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC. So he's in the front line of about 9,000 uh, Athenians, 8,000 Athenians against the Persians, the great Persian army, which has taken control of the largest empire the Mediterranean in particular has ever seen. He is fighting on the front line, we are told, at his most manly, Herodotus tells us, at his most manly, um, a, an enemy soldier, warrior, comes towards him, kills the man to his left, passes Epizelos by, ignores him, and continues fighting. And Epizelos, during this, is suddenly struck blind. Even though no arrow, no spear, no sword has touched him, he immediately goes blind for no discernible reason. From a modern perspective, this screams of um, sort of a conversion, this screams of um, uh, psychosomatic blindness. Uh, it's the only real logical explanation from our scientific perspective nowadays. Um, so in that respect, yes, we do have some evidence that suggests there is impact. But for me, what's more interesting is that it's more about what the ancient society or the historical society uh, perceived of that event. So for the Greeks, when Epizelos goes blind, they considered him a great hero. His blindness was proof of his bravery. It was literally 
literally occurs when he is at his most virile, his most masculine, um, and everything that they hold dear. That is when he goes blind. So his blindness is not a trauma, as we'd understand it, which has huge social ramifications and negative perspectives from an experiential perspective. Um, but he is uh, heroized for it. He becomes his, his famous person in Athens. Everyone knows his name. He even ends up in a massive painting mural in the Agora, in the marketplace. Famous he is because he went blind in battle. Um, so sort of straight back to your question, PTSD does not exist, no. Um, uh, not at all. However, there does seem to be evidence of psychological ramifications in war and impact on the uh, individual. Absolutely. Um, and what's interesting is that wasn't necessarily a negative thing um, afterwards. You know, the injured veteran or the, uh, the blind veteran who didn't even have a scratch uh, does not become someone to be afraid of, does not become someone to be hated, he does not become a coward. Um, he is uh, lauded. He is actually lauded in Athens. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Um, how do the Athenians commemorate war? How do they do remembrance? The commemoration of war is uh, interesting. You have to stop me if any of this sounds familiar. <laughs> um, they, uh, so first of all, the, they repatriate their war debt. They're the first state in European Britain history, at least, we know of who repatriate their war debt as a promise. You fight for us as a democracy, which means, of course, everyone votes to go to war. Um, you don't get to go to war unless your soldiers have actually agreed to do it. Um, and the promise is you will be brought home if you have died. You know, we will return you to the motherland. You will be given the rights and honours that you deserve. Um, so they get repatriated. They get a massive funeral, which uh, all in total lasts about two or three days. Um, and then they get buried. They get buried in their tribal um, coffins. So Athens is broken up into 10 tribes. You belong to a tribe. So if you die in one year, everyone else of your tribe who died that year gets buried in the same coffin. Um, so you get that, uh, the funeral itself, and you also get um, a nice funerary games, so athletic games in your honour, um, and you become a collective hero. And I don't mean that in a sort of modern sense. You know, a hero, um, it's the ancient Greeks, is um, just like a step down from divinity. So you uh, will have a cult in your honour. You um, 
believed to have the ability to impact the world even after death. Um, so you become this collective, this war dead. Um, so there's that element. But also your name gets written on a list, a list written in stone for that year. Um, you have what's called the casualty lists. So, you know, future generations can come up to the list and see your name written alongside your compatriots who have died. Um, but you have another issue, which is um, that's all well and good for those who died and could be repatriated. But a lot of people died at sea. And of course, dying at sea, it's very hard to collect the bodies. There's bodies that are a habit of floating and then uh, dropping down into the sea for a couple of days and floating again. And you haven't always got time to collect them. So the Athenians had a, a plan. Uh, during the funeral with the ten coffins, they also buried an empty funeral bed, which was made up as if a body was going to be on it. So you have this empty funeral bed that was also buried for those that were missing. And it's um, these elements, there's a reason why all these elements sound familiar, you know, the list, the names inscribed on stone, um, the commemorative uh, monuments, the, um, you know, the, the, the visual signs of the coffins being brought back, um, and the, uh, the symbolic burial for those who could not be returned. Um, this is exactly what uh, uh, Britain in particular, after the First World War, emulated in its own commemorative practices. You know, you can't go to a village now in Britain without seeing a similar war list for the First and Second World War. Um, our own uh, symbolic burial is, of course, the burial of the unknown warrior at Westminster Abbey. Um, and many nations around the world have the exact same um, symbolic burial as well. I know there's one in Poland, there's one in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, America, um, quite a few of the African nations, India, etc., etc is of a huge um, modern influence on commemorative practice. And it's all Athenian. It is originally an Athenian idea. I'm going to say something. Don't hate me. <laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> Go on. This is Sparta. Tell us about these incredible warriors. <laughs> um, Sparta, yeah. Uh, I mentioned them briefly. Um, Sparta, first thing to always keep in mind when you're talking about Sparta, we have nothing written from them. You know, I've, I briefly mentioned it earlier about how so much of our evidence is actually Athenian. This is really true when it comes to Sparta. We've got like nothing um, written by them. So everything we know about them is written by other people talking about them. Um, in particular, Athens uh, and Athenians, um, such as Xenophon, such as Thucydides, such as um, Plato, Aristotle, you know, some of the big names of the classical Greek world. Um, and this creates what we talk about as a Spartan mirage. So you're never reading about Sparta, you're never learning what Sparta was actually like. You're looking at a mirage from what other people have said about Sparta. So that's the first thing to always kind of keep in mind. Um, the second thing is, um, Sparta has become something uh, in the kind of uh, the modern idea of Sparta, whether it's like films like 300 and the like, um, because people over, over time fell in love with them. The Romans loved the Spartans because they liked this idea of a strong warrior nation, um, you know, capable of all these great things. Um, 
this is then becomes true uh, as you sort of hit the modern period as well. The Nazis freaking loved them, um, as did the Prussians actually. Uh, but the Nazis loved them because not only were they this kind of elite, pure race, um, they seemed to practice eugenics. Um, at least that's how you could read it, um, where they very closely monitor um, procreation and uh, pure Spartan blood and, and the like. So um, they lob the uh, un unimpressive babies in a pit, don't they? Yeah, yeah, that kind of area. But of course, um, that kind of exposure of babies it's not unique. That's quite common in the ancient world. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's not unique to Sparta, but you can certainly make a big deal about it. But the big, the big one for Sparta is this idea of what's called the adoge, the raising of children that seems to look quite militarised. Um, but actually, we know nothing about it. Or very little. One of the things I can definitely tell you they learned was singing and dancing. <laughs> um, but there's no evidence of... I don't know. Uh, there's no evidence of tactical training. There's no evidence of, um, you know, uh, weapons training even. Um, it probably happened. You know, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but, you know, let's not pretend that we know. That's kind of the first thing. The other thing is Sparta. If they are these incredible warriors that they're often portrayed to be, they should win a lot more than they do in battle. Um, you know, they win a couple of battles here and there, but in the Peloponnesian War, a lot. Um, they're actually on the losing side of battles. Um, so they're not this kind of elite military force that no one else could possibly um, face up against. Um, Athens, Thebes, um, or at least two who have defeated them more than once in battle. Um, and it's, it's actually Aristotle who says the reasons the Spartans are able to dominate when they did was because they were the only ones that trained their soldiers. They actually implemented some form of training. Now, this isn't very much training, but it's more than anyone else. And to kind of sum up how little it was, he then says the reason why they lose, why the Spartans finally lose their position to Thebes, is because Thebes decided to start training their men. And the moment they started training their men, they could defeat Spartans. Now, considering the Thebans only trained 300 men, who are called the Sacred Band, the band of 150 pairs of lovers, um, as we're told. Um, they train 300 men, and then all of a sudden, they can defeat the supposedly invincible warrior nation of Sparta. It, it, does, it does not add up. Basically, Sparta is a very good PR job, because um, ultimately their reputation precedes them. So there's quite a few instances where they go to battle the enemy run away before they actually engage. A lot of that is the fear of fighting the Spartans, not the reality of fighting the Spartans. So in that respect, um, no, uh, the Spartans are not a warrior society. They're not a, an incredible warrior state. Um, they're good at what they do, and they stand out amongst the Greeks. The Greeks themselves are very impressed with them. But ultimately, when they start training their own men for war, the Spartans lose. So they can't really have been that good. Uh, Owen, we've talked about women in ancient Greece having the short end of the stick. What's their experience of war? How close do they get and how are they affected and how do they deal with it? Yeah, so um, it's the one area of uh, military history that often gets ignored. It is, of course, gender. Um, you know, women are um, hugely impacted by war, whether it's um, 
through personal experience or through the fact that their husbands, their fathers, their brothers are going off to war and they're left at home. So you've got two kind of issues here. One's direct and one's kind of indirect. So directly, women, uh, the biggest threat women have in war is the fact that they are considered part of the loot. So if you're going to sack a city or if you're going to uh, ransack a baggage train or something like that, uh, one of the most valuable things you could take are the women and the children. You could then sell them into slavery, remembering Greece is, no matter how much is idealized, it is a slave-owning, slave-selling society. So in that respect, we actually hear, we have quite a few accounts of women um, in conflict, in particular, where the domestic sphere or the domestic world and the military world collide, which is in a siege. You know, women can't get out of a siege because that's where they live. Um, and so we actually do have accounts of women um, partaking in combat, you know, throwing roof tiles and, um, uh, and the like, actually engaging in combat. We also have evidence of women um, being part of the logistics of war. So, uh, you know, going about feeding soldiers um, as well as uh, handing out arrows to the archers, you know, uh, resupplying of weapons, things like that. So, no matter what uh, many a military historian might say of the ancient Greek world, women are very involved, uh, even directly, in certain situations. Indirectly, women of ancient Greece, in particular citizen women of ancient Greece, have a vital role. Because first of all, they've got to keep society going, or at least um, their own domestic life going. You know, the businesses that their, their husbands leave behind, whether it's a farm, whether it's a tannery, or whatever it is he does. Um, they've got to keep that going, because the husband could well be away for months and months and months on end. Um, so they have an important role there. Another area we see women having a very important role is religiously. So as the men go off the wall, women are often the ones who are saying the prayers to the gods, the offerings to the gods, trying to make sure the gods are on side during these military expeditions. Now, in the modern day, we may kind of consider that a small event, you know, not, not particularly. Why is that important in war? The Greeks was vital. That had to be done. And it was uh, the women that were left behind who were often the ones doing it. Um, so just because they don't appear in the grand battle narratives does not mean women are not um, vital and uh, pivotal to the, um, the war effort in, all, in pretty much every single Greek state we hear of. Um, women are there doing these roles. Unfortunately, we have no female source from this period, really, uh, who talks about this in particular. Um, so, you know, they're often hidden um, by male sources who are discussing more grand political things. Um, so it's just little snippets. You hear little snippets of uh, things, of uh, women's involvement and the importance of that involvement. You've got to try and piece these things together. In terms of experience, the impact it has on them is massive. Whether it's becoming an orphan um, through your dad's death, whether it's becoming a widow. Um, in Athens, for instance, a widow was a uh, almost like a legal status. A war widow was uh, almost a protected status. There's a suggestion they may have even had um, a pension almost uh, paid to them. Um, we know their children uh, almost certainly did. Um, 
So, you know, th th these kind of impacts are, are obvious. The other element that doesn't get talked about is suffering at home whilst their husbands, fathers, sons are out. And the suffering at home comes as, um, as much from silence, not knowing what's happening, as opposed to, um, you know, hearing of death, uh, hearing of losses and such like. You know, so that kind of not knowing, whilst we can't tell, we can't, I can't tell you what any Athenian female, Spartan female actually said about it, not knowing does seem to really have an impact on their, uh, on their experience of war. War is not a glorious thing to women, it's not really a glorious thing to men, but they like to say it is during this period. Um, but to women, this is, this is a scary time. This is a time of uncertainty. It's a time of, uh, of unknowing, um, but also a time of responsibility. So one of the nice things about military history that it gives us in this kind of time period is periods of warfare work as almost like a stress test of a culture. You know, so we really see the cracks in our images of these cultures when it's at war. Um, where ideology starts to fall away and pragmatism becomes more important. So in that sense, in a highly misogynistic culture, highly patriarchal, during warfare, women, the role of a, uh, women in society becomes more and more important. You can't really hide it, no matter how much our sources perhaps want to. I you find that really interesting because you kind of see that more in a modern modern day sense as well i mean obviously not right now but uh in the early 20th century you see the same thing women become quite important mm. when men go to to war the first world war for example yes. and the second yeah <laughs> um i suppose the, the the i suppose the big difference between the two is especially here um after the first world war women partially reflecting that importance during the war um yes right as a result you know they start to um the inequality that is forced upon them starts to be loosened shall we say it hasn't gone of course it hasn't gone but it's been loosened at that point um in greece no nothing they get nothing for any of this i have a bit of a question though before we finish mm -hmm. so when lockdown has ended where is the first place in greece you want to go oh uh, when lockdown finally ends and people do what needs to be done. Um, oh, where in Greece? I suppose for me it'll be somewhere like Eleusis, which is a religious site just outside of Athens, or oh, Delphi. I've never actually been to Delphi. My shame. Do you know what? Me neither. I've never been to Delphi, Delphi and I really want to go because we did a lot of work in it at university. Mm. Um, and uh, Michael Scott obviously wrote a book on Delphi and I've read it want to see it I know we should all do like a like a history hack um what you call it adventure out to Greece let's do it Alex do it involve alcohol of course of course boom I'm in let's do it I could just see this this is a what do you know what we're gonna have too many of these trips Alex man too many of these trips it's just gonna be awesome do a grand tour style uh trip of Europe yeah. Do you know what? I keep telling it. her this. I really keep telling her this, so we've got to do it, and we can do it on the motorbike because that'll be even more cool. Only if I get oh. to drive. No. <laughs> Not coming then. Just. 
I am the rider. Anyway, <laughs> Owen, thank you so much for joining us and uh, telling us more about the Peloponnesian War, about the role of women during war, and did actually PTS PTSD exist? And it's quite interesting uh, comparing the Athenian commemoration award to more modern times as well. That was really interesting. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Greg Jones, another Pulitzer nominee. We have left it far, far too long before we brought you something on Vietnam. And he's going to talk to us about the siege at Khe San and what is arguably the US Marine Corps' finest hour in Vietnam. Really interesting stuff. Uh, you can now nominate History Hack for an award. If you go to BritishPodcastAwards.com, you can nominate us for a Listener's Choice Award. Uh, you have to do your vote by the 6th of July 2020, uh, and they will announce the winner at the British Podcast Awards on Saturday, the 11th of July 2020. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind, we'd really appreciate it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.